Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, choir, orchestra, for leading us in worship so faithfully and excellently. Just a brief announcement. Three weeks from today, we begin our missions festival. As you well know, there's very few churches that have sent out more missionaries than Lakeview Baptist. And this is one of these strategic weeks that God has used to raise up missionaries here. I mean, you get to sit at the table with real life missionaries. We've heard testimonies recently of, of, of people who got a sense of their call sitting there at a table with missionaries. And so Chuck Lawless will be preaching, one of my former professors. He will be preaching the Sunday morning and Sunday evening service on the 25th, I believe. And then there will be opportunities to sign up for lunches and dinners. There's a men's breakfast on Monday morning. Uh, we will have those sign-ups in the, uh, your Sunday school classes, or you can see how. I'll give you his uh, home phone, and you can call him there. No, just tease him. But uh, it's a great week. Be praying for it. And I know how strategic that week was for me when I was here as an intern. Um, when it's over, it's kind of like VBS. You're tired, but you're sad that it's over. And so please be praying for that and plan to attend. Well, if you would, we're going to get at the heart of this passage. We're in verses 14 to 24, but really the heart of this passage is found in verse 17, where Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Let's pray. Father, our will this morning, because of your regenerating grace by the Spirit of Christ, is to do your will. And Lord, it's your will for me to faithfully preach this word this morning, and it's your will for us, the people of God, to hear it in the obedience of faith. May we be found faithful to this responsibility and this opportunity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Youth for Christ was founded in 1944, and its two first evangelists were a man named Chuck Templeton, and you may have heard of this guy, Billy Graham. Now, by all accounts, believe it or not, Chuck Templeton was considered the most gifted of the two evangelists. In fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published a pictorial piece on well-known evangelicals, best used of God, as it, as it said, best used of God, and it named Templeton and not Billy Graham as one of the rising stars in evangelicum. But both were very gifted, and both preached together all over the world. They would go, and wherever they went, they, they filled up halls, they filled up auditoriums and stadiums, but yet in time, Chuck Templeton began to struggle with, the, with doubts concerning his message, the, the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And so in order to, to tighten up his theological grip, he decided to enroll in Princeton Theological Seminary. 
Well, he tried to get Billy. He really persuaded or sought to persuade Billy Graham to go to seminary with him at Princeton. And Billy said no. And it's a good thing he didn't because Princeton had gone liberal. And, and so Chuck went there already struggling with doubt and unbelief. And he was confirmed in it at Princeton Theological Seminary. And so when he would see Billy, they would go and preach. Uh, he would see him. He, he would bring up his skeptical ideas. It was not, not based on anything uh, that was of any substance. It was based on presuppositions. He would bring up these skeptical ideas, and he would ask Billy to defend his biblical view. And in one particular uh, conversation, Billy told Chuck, Chuck, look, I haven't a good enough mind to settle these questions. I don't have the time, the inclination, or the set of mind to pursue them. And Templeton responded famously to Billy Graham, that's intellectual suicide. Well, he did plant doubts in, in Billy, and, and Billy began to ask himself the question, well, I believe the Bible's the word of God, but you got all these smarter people who teach in these prestigious theological seminaries, and they don't believe the Bible the way I believe the Bible. Maybe they're right, and maybe I'm wrong. Well, the resolution came for Billy 73 years ago this past week. Uh, this past week, 73 years ago, at a student conference at Forest Home, which was a retreat center in San Bernardino Mountains uh, near L.A., he and Chuck Templeton were the featured speakers. And Chuck began to engage Billy once again in all of his skeptical, liberal views about the Bible. And Billy got deeply discouraged and so he decided to go for a walk in the forest. And he's walking through the forest, and he comes to a little trail, and he walks the trail, and then takes a diversion off the trail, and he finds this large stone with a stump next to it. And he sat down on that stone, and he placed his open Bible uh, on, the, on the stump. And he began to pray, and he said, Lord, I have all of these doubts. And then as he prayed and as he read the Scripture... He came under the conviction of sin. He came to be convicted that his doubts and his unbelief were sinful. And he determined then and there to commit his life once again to Jesus Christ and to the word of God. And here's what he said. God, I cannot answer all the questions Chuck is raising. But I accept this book by faith as the word of God. And just weeks later, this was in August of 49, just weeks later in September, Billy Graham preaches the L.A. Crusades that lasted some six weeks, and it made him internationally famous. Templeton couldn't make such a surrender. And so by the time you get to 1957, he's an agnostic. He's walked away from the Word of God. He's walked away from uh, ministry. And he's walked away from his wife. In contrast, Billy Graham's commitment that he would forever die to any doubts about the Word of God galvanized his faith. And as he said later, 
It gave power and authority to my preaching that has never left me. The gospel in my hands became a hammer and a flame. What was the difference between these two men? Well, in one sense, you could say Chuck Templeton was not converted. Billy Graham was converted. But in another sense, we could say that fundamentally, through the regenerating grace of God in Christ by the Spirit, Billy's will was to do God's will. And in that commitment to God's will, it confirmed him in his faith in the trustworthiness, the inerrancy, the authority of Scripture. Chuck Templeton's will was not to do God's will. It was divorced from God's will. And as he persisted in doubt, as he persisted in unbelief, he apostatized from the faith. And that's really the issue that's going on in our passage today. Jesus is exposing these religious leaders. And like Chuck Templeton, and unlike Billy Graham, these religious leaders were not committed to God's will. As Paul will write in Romans 10, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own and did not submit to God's righteousness. They were not committed to God's will. They were committed to self-righteousness. They were committed to self-exaltation. And Jesus is going to make the point, we just read this in verse 17, that your commitments matter. They matter. And that brings us to the first point in the first part of this passage. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know the source of the word of Christ. He will know the source. He will know that the source is the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. Look with me in verse 14. About the middle of the feast. So this is the feast of, of booths as we, we saw. And uh, this is probably this is around October. It's the fall and it's the last uh, harvest feast of the year. And it celebrates the, the full ingathering uh, of the crops. And so middle of the feast, which would be probably Tuesday or Wednesday... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. We saw last time that he went to Jerusalem in secret. It wasn't that he was being deceitful. He just knew that coming into Jerusalem as Messiah during the Feast of Booze was the wrong time. It required him to come during the time of Passover because he was coming as the sacrificial lamb. And he knew that they would try to uh, enthrone him as king or they would try to kill him. And so he came in secret, but the reason he came is because young men, 20 and older, were required to come to Jerusalem for the festival. He's coming as the obedient one for us. He's, he's a law keeper. That's why he's there. But uh, he comes in prudence because he recognizes that if he, if he comes into the public in the temple, no one's going to mess with him because there were those who were sympathizing with him. Now, it says he came teaching. And that reminds us how important teaching is in, in the economy of God. It doesn't tell us what he was teaching. But remember, he is six months out from the cross at this moment. And so we can get a good idea 
of what he was teaching. I tend to think that he was exposing their faulty, these Jewish leaders that is, their faulty interpretation of what we call the Old Testament. Judaism had turned the Old Testament, Judaism had turned the law into a ladder to climb in order to satisfy God's requirements, human merit. They had turned it into that rather than what it is, a promise of grace that would come through a suffering servant, a Messiah. I tend to think that's what he was teaching. Well, notice in verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? We talked last week about the irony of of the incarnation. Well, this is quite ironic because if you'll remember in in Luke's gospel, uh, we see that at the age of 12, he came to the temple and, and all the leaders there were just marveling at this child prodigy, at the insights on, on Scripture that he, that he had at the age of 12. But in the world of Judaism, if a person had not studied with a, a rabbi with credentials, his teaching was considered suspect. His teaching was just his own. That was the view. And so, what's unusual here is he hasn't studied with the learned rabbis, but as Isaiah prophesied of the the suffering servant to come, the Lord God, Isaiah 50, had given him a tongue of those who are taught. That's what they were marveling at. This man isn't educated, and he is speaking with a tongue that has been taught. Well, notice in verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, to teach without reference to the learned rabbis would have been seen as arrogant. It would have been as if someone was teaching on their own authority. But Jesus says, I am not teaching on my own authority. Now, if you were to ask Christians today, where did Jesus get this kind of knowledge? The general answer would be, well, he's God. He didn't need to go to school. He didn't need to be taught. Uh, He's God, he was just born with that knowledge. Well, it's not that simple, all right? Certainly he is God, he is fully God. But keep in mind, because of the incarnation. Now, what is the incarnation? Maybe you've never heard that term. It's when the Son of God assumed human flesh, the eternal Son of God, the one who is the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten, eternally generated from the Father. When the Son of God assumed human flesh, that's called the incarnation. And because of this incarnation, the Son of God is now able to live and act through both natures. Fully God, fully man. But there's a mystery to that. Uh, B.B. Warfield once summarized the the mystery of the incarnation of of the two natures of Christ with these words. He said, 
because he is man, he's capable of growth and wisdom. And because he is God, he is from the beginning wisdom itself. And during his earthly ministry, the Son of God, in concert with all three persons of the Godhead, there's an inseparable operation in the Godhead, the Son of God uh, chose to live within the limitations of his humanity unless the Father uh, allowed otherwise. So there are times when he, he demonstrates the knowledge of his divine nature, but he chose to live within the framework of his human nature. Now, why would he do it that? Well, during uh, the 33 years that he spent on earth as our substitute, Jesus willingly laid aside access to what was his by virtue of his divine nature uh, to be what we needed him to be as our human substitute, okay? So he's actually coming as a man fulfilling all righteousness, not depending on his divine nature for that righteousness, but obeying God as our law-keeping substitute. And then on the cross, dying as the one who was accursed of God because our sins were imputed to him. And so as a man, he would have studied the Old Testament. He would have studied it from his childhood and he grew and he mature in statue with God and with man as he studied the Old Testament. Now having established the truth that Jesus' teaching was from the Father and not the rabbis, it teaches us something very important about our capacity to understand truth and it's, it, it brings us to verse 17, the verse I read earlier. Look with me in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What he's saying there is discerning and understanding and believing the truth of God as revealed through the word of Christ is not dependent on your IQ, because we all know highly educated people who don't believe this. And we know people who, who struggle with learning disabilities who do. It's not dependent on your IQ. It's not dependent on your formal education. Uh, I spent 19 years on the campus of Southern Seminary. How many people did I see through those years who knew every jot and tittle of theology, but they apostatized? It's not dependent on those things. No. It depends on a person's willingness to do the will of God. Now, we understand that even that capacity is a, is a regenerating grace from God. But it depends on our willingness to obey God. Incidentally, this was Jesus par excellence as our substitute. In Hebrews 10, it says of Jesus, Behold, I have come to do your will. And so as our substitute, Jesus did God's will where you and I don't. He did it, did it every moment of his life. Not one moment of his life did he not do the will of God. What Jesus seems to be saying here is that the roadblock to knowing the truth about God is more likely to be moral 
or is a lack of readiness to do God's will than anything else. That's the roadblock. It's not IQ. It's not lack of education. It is, it is moral. That's, that's the big problem. F.F. F. Bruce said, if there is a readiness to, to do the will of God, the capacity for discerning God's message will follow. And by the way, you'd be hard-pressed to say that you desire to do the will of God if you don't read your Bible. You, whatever you may confess, if you don't read your Bible, and I'm not being legalistic here. I'm not being moralistic. This is the will of God. And so if I'm not concerned about what it says, I'm not really committed to the will of God. That is a moral issue. And if that's where you are, and by the way, it was where I was for 23 years of my life. We need to repent of that. We need to do business with God, just like Billy Graham did at that conference 73 years ago. And this is exactly why these opponents, these religious leaders, didn't receive him in faith. Joel Niederhood, in his fine book, for The Forever People, says this, Those who trust in Christ and are trying to do his will should realize that the people around them who reject Christ are doing so because they've not chosen to do God's will. Those who choose their own will or the will of others who oppose Christ will simply not be able to recognize the truth the Christ has come to bring. And so in John, what is God's will? We've seen it, to believe on the Son. The whole book is about that, believing on the Son. Not just an intellectual belief, but committing your life, committing yourself, committing your eternity to the Son, dying to the sin that he died on the cross for. That is the central will of God in the gospel of John. And that means that only those who believe in the Son will recognize the truth of his teaching. Or to say it another way, believe that you may know. Believe that you may know. This was Chuck Templeton's predicament. And it was the predicament of these religious leaders. Look at me in verse 18. Jesus adds, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Now, the Jewish leaders, ironically, would have amended um, uh, what Jesus said here. They, they would have agreed with this. In, in their own teaching, uh, they cited the authority of others. And so they would say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and and Rabbi so-and-so said that, and to fail to do that would be considered arrogant. It would have been considered haughty. But they were actually guilty of speaking on their own authority by quoting the rabbis. Now, why do I say that? <clears throat> because human tradition, human tradition of Judaism exalted man and not God. As I said earlier, human tradition taught that, that, that the law was a stairway to climb to get to God. Just climb the stairs and you will merit eternal life. And so actually what they were believing exalted their, their own morality. 
And so in a very real sense, they were speaking by their own authority. Rather than a Christ-centered interpretation of the Old Testament, which Jesus taught, that exalts the grace of God, that exalts the mercy of God, that exalts the substitute, the Messiah, of whom Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, notice in the second part of verse 18. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus is saying, I was sent by the Father. And you can know that what I say is true because I don't seek my own glory. I seek the glory of the one who sent me. In other words, he was a steward, he was a herald of God himself for the glory of God himself. Uh, He worked for the Father's honor alone. And the fact that their theology honored themselves evidenced falsehood in their theology. Of course, this was a misapplication of a larger misapplication of the law. That's usually the problem, by the way, a, a a misunderstanding of the relationship between law and grace. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. Uh, We've seen uh, if anyone's will to do God's will, he will know the source of the word of Christ. And here in our passage, if anyone wills to do God's will, he will know the purpose of the law of Christ. So we know the source and we know the purpose. That brings us to verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? That's the question he asked. By the way, these were people that probably had the law memorized. We, we, we pat ourselves on the back if we memorize a couple of verses from Psalm 23. Well, these people probably had the entire law memorized. And he says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Boy, those are fighting words. Why do you seek to kill me? So a central sin of the human heart. And all you have to do is evangelize. Just do evangelism one day and you'll see this. A central sin of the human heart is to think you can please God by your own merits. To do that, all you have to do is find one person who's worse than you. All right. If you can just find one person that's worse than you, uh, we have this, this, this sinful tendency to think that God is okay with me. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's cutting them at the core of their identity. And what is their identity? It's not God. It's not Jesus. It's self-righteousness. And here's a point I want to make with you. When someone compromises your idols and their idol was self-righteousness it's probably it may be different for you but all of us struggle with functional idols right even as believers we struggle with that there are things that vie for our affections that's not Jesus when someone compromises your idols the natural response is to desire harm for that person 
Now, you're likely because of social conventions and you were raised in a, a Christian home and there's, uh, we've got a great police force in Auburn, you're likely not going to murder anyone. But murderous rage rises up. Bitterness um, and, and anger, unrighteous anger, you can often see it on a person's countenance. Uh, a person who's bitter and angry, they wear it on their countenance. Let me just say something. If you have that kind of anger, there is no one else the problem. You are. And God may have used someone to expose your biggest problem. Notice he says, none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Again, when your idols are compromised, murderous rage rises to the surface. And so for Judaism then and Judaism now. Now notice I say Judaism. I'm not talking about Jews who have bowed the knee to King Jesus. I'm talking about Judaism. For Judaism then and Judaism now, uh, the idol is self-righteousness. A few years ago, I, I served as a, a chaperone uh, as Southern Seminary took a trip to, to Israel. And we had this amazing Jewish uh, tour guide named Adrian. I, I believe he was a genius. Uh, Adrian could tell you every inch of Israel. He could tell you history on it. And, and he just, he knew everything about Israel. Just, he was a walking dictionary. But I had a lot of conversations about Christ with him. And one day I asked him this question. I said, Adrian, since the temple no longer exists and Jews no longer offer animal sacrifices, how do modern Jews atone for sin? And he gave me a history. He said, well, after the temple was destroyed by the Romans and then the later Byzantines uh, took over, uh, they banned Jews from Jerusalem for, for six centuries, for 600 years. Uh, so there was no sanctuary, no temple that could be rebuilt. And so Judaism, he says, was at a, a crossroads. And the rabbinical solution, that is the solution from the rabbis, was that they converted the sacrifices into what they call avada, works of man. Avada, works. So today, he said, uh, we, we atone for sin by our penitence, our repentance, uh, our prayers, and our charity. Now, now think about this. For all of those centuries, from the beginning of the the, the sacrificial system on. And even before that, at the center of Israel's life and culture was a scene of violence and gore. The priests daily dripping in blood. You couldn't walk the streets without the stench of blood and the bleeding of lambs who were being sacrificed on the altar. And every drop of blood was a reminder of the infinite gap between a holy God and sinful man. It drove that home. Every bleat of a sheep 
was a cry for a Messiah to come who would offer the once-for-all sacrifice. And they had converted the sacrificial system into social work. Do you see how short that falls? Judaism, then and now, and every other religion in the world, but the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ is based on works and human merit. And it's also a symptom that God's will is not supreme for you, your will is. Of course, when God's will is not your commitment, it, it makes you blind to your own sin. It makes you a hypocrite. And you see it in the church. Someone will complain about someone else, and in their complaining, they're sinning about someone else. It's hypocrisy. Well, notice in verse 20. The crowd answered. When your idols are getting exposed, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. What's he talking about? When he healed the, the lame man on, on the Sabbath, probably a year earlier. They're still angry about it. <laughs> Moses, bitter people have the longest, they have longer memories than elephants. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. No, the circumcision even preceded the law. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? And so uh, here's what he's saying. The law says you circumcise, Leviticus 12, you circumcise young boys, babies, on the eighth day. And if it falls on the Sabbath, you, you circumcise the baby on the Sabbath. They were choice to, uh, faced with a choice. Do we break the Sabbath or do we break this law of circumcision? wasn't breaking it, but they, they determined in the wisdom of God that it was right to circumcise babies even when it falls on the Sabbath. And think about this. What is circumcision? Without being graphic, it's, it's an act of mutilation. And the reason it's an act of mutilation is because of what it points to. The circumcision that they would undergo would ultimately point to the one who would be mult, uh, mutilated for us on the cross. But Jesus is saying, I didn't mutilate anyone. I restored their health. I made them whole. And so you have this circumcision, mutilation that takes place on the Sabbath, and here I am making someone whole, and you want to kill me. Again, the hypocrisy. Again, legalism is not commitment to God. It's a commitment to self. Well, Notice in verse 24 as we close. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. By the way, this is the key to understanding the purpose of the law. The, the Jewish leaders were masters of outward conformity to man-made laws. They were the best in the history of the world. But it was outward conformity for the purpose of self-exaltation. But the right use of the law judges us not on appearances. The right use of the law 
judges us rightly. And that's why Paul would write later in Galatians 3, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You get that? For it is written, cursed by everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Why? Because the law, not the traditions of man, judges with right judgment. And the law was intended to expose our rot and our sin. But if no one can be saved by trying to live by the law, why did God give us the law? Well, it's simple. The answer was it was given to drive us to Christ. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And it's that commitment to Jesus, our commitment to God through Jesus Christ that the Jews lacked and Chuck Templeton lacked. And therefore, all the doubts abounded in their lives. Every aspect of this passage is intended to show us how Jesus fulfills everything from the Old Testament. Why? To transform our sinful commitments. We are not naturally committed to God. And so in John 6, we see he offers bread for life. And he says, I am that bread. We see in John chapter 6 that he goes during the time of Passover. He is the Passover lamb. We saw in chapter 7 that he is the whole point of the Feast of Booths. When all the, the, the harvest has been gathered in the barns upon his return in glory. He is the point of circumcision. He is the point of the law. He's the one who came and fulfilled the law's demands because we cannot. And now, as John Bunyan says, fly John, John, uh, run John, run, the law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands, but a different word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. And that gospel is what transforms our commitments from self and self-exaltation to, to the true and living God as we know him through Jesus Christ. And that is a word for every believer here who are prone to wonder. But it's also a word to those who are not yet believers. And there's some here. I don't know who you are. I don't have anybody in mind. But as Adam, as the musicians come forward, we're going to have our, our pastors here. We would love to talk to you. We would love to answer any questions you might have about what does it mean to commit yourself to God through Jesus Christ? What does it mean that Jesus Christ came as our sin bearer? What does it mean that he came to fulfill the law's commands as our substitute? What do these things mean? We would love to answer those questions. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever the need is, won't you come as we stand and sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.